After being booed at the World Series, Donald Trump threatens to bomb Cooperstown. <laughs> Republican members of Congress storm Minute Maid Park in Houston to try to shut down Game 6. <laughs> and Fox News claims Babe Ruth was a double agent. Uh. Welcome to the Wolfpack. I'm Carl Wolfson along with Kim Up and Paul Block. Dylan Hides, our show produced by Patrick Zahn. We come to you from Portland, Oregon. Good morning. That's too many years of saying good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, Pat. <laughs> good, evening. good evening. I really stunned myself there. When we leave here, I go to dinner. I don't go to breakfast. Yeah. I'm, Gary has a wonderful pot roast at home, so I'm mm. going to that. Mm. We're all coming over. I've become a vegetarian. I do not eat meat anymore. Well, come over and join us. Okay. Um, a nice pinot. Did you say pinot? <laughs> I, I made sure. Uh, I, I want to make sure it was an opening for, uh, for for Paul, who loves to live his life in the yeah, seventh grade. With these two, you should know better. Come I on, know. Kim. I know. I'm, just, I'm eliminating all P words from my vocabulary immediately. Uh, faintest suggestion. You guys take it. All and right. Run. Poor Kim. Poor Kim. A uh, couple quick notes that just came over the wire from Bloomberg. Headline, manufacturing is now the smallest share of the U.S. economy in 72 years. Their lead, three years after Donald Trump campaigned for president, pledging a factory renaissance, the opposite appears to be happening. Manufacturing made up only 11% of the gross domestic product in the second quarter, the smallest share in data going back to 1947. Now, he went all through the so-called Rust Belt, promising that the factories would reopen, uh, is he going to be held to the results in 2020? I, I, whether he will or he won't. I think he will be, but I think in, with all due disrespect, it's not warranted. <laughs> uh, he has – it's not his fault. His, it's his fault that he made a promise that was bullshit. Right. But it's not his fault that manufacturing jobs are going away. It seems like, I understand that, but it seems like a lot of people in the, the Midwest – believed that he would do what he said he would do because he's this incredible uh, laissez-faire guy, the There's guy that knows faire, business, French the guy that knows Pathological economy. liar. Yeah. Well, I think the bigger issue is not that it's his fault, but that he ran for office promising to turn this around. It actually hasn't. And right. I don't. Th I think for most people, as this is going to be a theme in tonight's show, is that th most of these numbers are baked in the cake because everyone's decisions about Trump is basically made up. But when you're talking about states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and uh, – oh, not Ohio. Michigan. Michigan. Michigan where they were decided by close to 1% or less, there, this could be enough of an issue to sway those states and back Democrats in the blue column. And Democrats need to go into those states and hold up what he said we, he would absolutely. do and then the, the factories close. So, you know, I absolutely. don't – Absolutely. My, my, my statement uh, that it's not necessarily his fault, it's still his fault for being a liar and telling people he was going to change it. Right. Uh, the second is kind of right in this territory again. Uh, Robert E. Murray, this is from Bloomberg, the U.S. coal baron who pressed the Trump administration to help save America's struggling miners, placed his com company into bankruptcy as demand for the fossil fuel continues to weaken. Murray Energy Holdings Company, the largest privately owned U.S. coal company, filed for Chapter 11 protection in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Columbus, Ohio, to restructure more than $2.7 billion of debt. So this Trump tells people in West Virginia, Southern Ohio, and Western Pennsylvania that coal is coming back. It's not coming back. And who had a plan to move coal workers into the 21st century renewable mm -hmm. economy? Hillary it wasn't Don, Donald Trump. It was Hillary Clinton. Right. And, and they all freaked out when she said, coal workers, your jobs are not coming back. All she did was tell the truth, the unfortunate truth. 
And what really irks me about this is that you know that if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, that right now Donald Trump and the Republicans would be blaming her for killing the coal industry as if it wasn't an inevitable step of our energy production. Right. Exactly right. One last thing before we get into the questions, Paul, and this is of great local import to us here in Oregon, Greg Walden, who has been in Congress for quite a while in CD2, the only uh, congressional district in, in Oregon represented by a Republican is retiring. He's not mm-hmm. going to run again. And uh, any thoughts on that? I have one, one question since I'm, I'm, I'm not a native Oregonian. Uh, is his part of Oregon so red? <laughs> that, uh, do you need, need you ask the question? <laughs> that no one – Blue could go there and win? Well, I mean, as a former resident of this district, I lived there from 1983 to 1996 and a little bit in the late 90s. Yes, it's that red (laughs) and it's getting redder. Um, To give you some idea of how red it is, he won in 2016 with – he beat his opponent by 55 percent. I'm not saying he got 55 percent. I'm saying he got 55 percent more than his Democratic opponent. In 2018, he had a legitimate opponent, someone named Jamie McLeod Skinner who in a year of the woman, Democratic wave, ran a smart, strong, energetic campaign, lost by 17 points. Well, she got 39.4% of the vote. To his Right. Interesting question. I don't know if you'll have the answer. What land percentage of Oregon is his district? God, it looks don't probably like percentage. 75% yeah, or 80%. Yeah. Percent, it's, like that. it's 20 out of our 36 counties. Yeah. For those listening out of state, uh, Oregon is a very, very blue state in our congressional representation. We have Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden in the Senate, and four of our five Congress uh, people are, are Democrats in, in pretty solidly Democratic districts. Over the years, Portland has gotten very blue. The surrounding suburban counties have gotten very blue, and the counties along Hood, uh, along the Columbia and along the Pacific Ocean have gotten pretty blue too. It's the rural area that remains red, but they have a representative. So I don't think that we're going to see it turn blue. I'm pretty sure we won't. But what this tells you is so many Republicans retiring from from the House, they pretty much are telling us they know they're not going to be a majority Mm -hmm. in January of of, of 2021. Right. I want to make another point about this district is that when I lived out there and what you'll still hear from people out there is that they hate Oregon politics because – Portland and Eugene always decide the elections. Well, here's a a secret for these people. 55% of the state lives in either the Portland or Eugene metropolitan areas. So you're damn right they decide the issues because that's where the people live. And people – one vote, one person, one vote. That's an American principle. Uh, Something else to keep in mind here is that – Unless you're in Wyoming. (laughs) Right. One person, 20 (laughs) votes if you're compared to California. But the other issue I want to point out here is that we expect after the 2020 census that Oregon will get one more congressional district, right. which sounds like great news. It's not great news for – it's good for to have more voice for Oregon, but it's not great news in that it's almost definitely going to be a Republican seat because right now we have five seats, four Democrats, one Republican. There really is no way, even with the slickest of gerrymandering – not that I'm advocating for that, but the slickest of gerrymandering to, to come up with a map that gives you five Democratic seats and one Republican seat. Is the growth in Oregon happening in the Republican area? No. Or, so why would they get another seat? Well, you have to redraw lines every 10 years, and they're going to redraw the lines for the whole state. And they've got to put – they've got to divide it into six equal pieces. And uh-huh. we, you can't carve it up in a way to put two uh, – or just put all Republicans into one single district. I would say that the hope for Wyoming 
is to give sheep the right to vote and make sure they're Democratic sheep. <laughs> or move a bunch of Californians out there. With the fires, don't you, you find know, that there's got to be some Kim, states that, is, that would I, be more appealing to them? I keep wondering about that because Wyoming has the smallest population of all of our 50 states. I mean, if, if you had like Jackson, whole Wyoming, or an area where many liberals would move, it could become a, a blue state. I mean, statistically, it could. But who wants to live in Wyoming? Well, I lived in Deep Red, Nebraska, and it was it was. I, I spent a decade there in a two year. It was rough. Yeah. Well, you know, Nebraska is one of two states, along with Maine, that gives its congressional districts separately in the yes, election. Yeah. Uh, so, in fact, I believe Obama uh, won split, yeah. one of the districts in Nebraska when he ran yeah. uh, the first. Well, time. one of the uh, Wyoming senators is retiring, so come next next term, say hello to Senator Liz Cheney. Cheney, Liz Cheney. Yeah. Uh, but why don't we uh, why don't we get into what we're uh, now that we've damned rural America? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I just want to say that Hillary Clinton lost in Wyoming by 120,000 votes in 2016. So you would need 121,000 <laughs> Californians who would all vote and all vote the right way. They have had some Democratic governors, Dave Freudenthal, most recently. So um, you know, it's not like they can't elect Democrats in Wyoming. The problem is there are differences between local elections or state elections and national mm-hmm. elections. Way too many Republicans in Wyoming. I'm happy, though, that we have a solidly blue left coast here with California, Oregon, and Washington in presidential elections. We've now added Colorado, New Mexico, and Nevada, which are pretty regularly red, and we're going to add very soon Arizona. So the West is no longer Republican country. And the Holy Grail, Texas. And, yep. <laughs> and eventually the Pacific states of America may be formed. Uh, but, Rico, State Washington, of Jefferson. But who, who wants to talk about impeachment? Who thinks that is on anybody's mind? I don't know. But anyway, uh, Speaker Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, says the House will vote on Thursday to formalize the impeachment inquiry. How long do Democrats have, do you guys think, before the public loses interest in impeachment? And when should the hearings go public? Well, I want to go back. So in the two years before the Ukraine scandal, the support for the impeachment of Trump was between 40 and 45 percent of the American people. Once Nancy Pelosi announced her impeachment inquiry was happening, it jumped to 50 percent. So a whole five points that went up. And now it's kind of between 50, 51, 52, depending on what poll you're looking at. Um, 43% of Americans still approve of Trump's presidency and 45% oppose impeachment. And so what these numbers show me is that uh, people's opinion is done Trump, as we already know, is baked in the cake. So even if with the Ukraine scandal where Trump is admitting to extorting a fledgling ally for personal gain by withholding federally earmarked dollars to defend itself against Russia, only one in 20 Americans has changed their opinion on Trump because of this dramatic occurrence. So I'm not worried about the length of the impeachment diminishing public support, um, since I, I think support is pretty much already set. I have other concerns, but I'll let somebody else weigh in. Well, yeah. um, I have uh, my, my, my major thought on that coming, being, coming from the world of television and knowing what kind of messages come on television, we haven't started public hearings yet. That's right. Once that parade of loyal American State Department employees, Defense Department employees start standing up and saying, how did this man do this? How is he dumping on Ukraine, our national security, the buffer state between Europe and Russia? Once those people 
that work for America, true patriots, stand up, and people can watch them on television, it may start to look like the McCarthy hearings. I mean, but this isn't 1974. I mean, we, we right now have the Trump administration calling out decorated war veterans well, and lifetime career State Department officials calling them traitors. It's not moving anybody. Well, uh, I, I'm going to take a little issue with what you just said, Dylan, and support Paul a little bit on this because to, we're, we're broadcasting. <laughs> Kim, we're, come on, I need help over we're, here. We're, we're, Kim, I want to hear you support me too. <laughs> as much as it pains me to disagree with Dylan, um, <laughs> we, we're broadcasting on the 29th of October, which is Tuesday. On this day, we have an Army Lieutenant Colonel. His name is Alexander Vindeman. If you're following the no- news, you already know who he is. He's the top Ukrainian expert on the NSC, the National Security Council. He is a decorated Iraq War veteran, won the Purple Heart. Carrying shrapnel in his body right right, now. He testified today in the closed session that he was – he is the first person we've heard from who was actually listening in on that now infamous July 25th call when he heard Donald Trump, as you say, Dylan, extort uh, President Zelensky to investigate the Bidens. And his point is – that he considered this so damning, he's not even the whistleblower or whistle, one of the whistleblowers. He reported it twice to his superiors, and this is his reasoning. And he is originally from the Ukraine. In fact, his family fled the Soviet Union. He moved here when he was three. Right. Um, so his whole point was you can't draw Ukraine into a political firestorm in the United States because it jeopardizes if – if they piss off – Trump and the Republicans, or if they piss off the Democrats, that's why countries don't get involved in the eternal political affairs of a country. It will jeopardize their chance to get much-needed aid to keep Russia at bay. And supposedly that's what he said today. And we saw Fox this morning try to discredit this man. Uh, We saw Laura Ingram either last night or this morning suggest that he is a double agent that he is a spy. I mean, how low can you go? In fact, Liz Cheney, who you mentioned, actually defended this man. That's she that's how low that, Fox went. She claimed that attitude was, quote, shameful, unquote. And I saw a guy on television claiming, by the way, that when Laura Ingram suggested that this fellow has loyalty to another country rather than the United States, the fellow being uh, a a Ukrainian Jew who came here, uh, I saw an Arab guy on television today claiming that was an anti-Semitic trope that Laura Ingram was putting out. Well, my point, getting back to my point, is that I believe that Americans are watching this um, it is moving the needle a little bit since Pelosi uh, said she's going to – the House would, would start an impeachment process. So people are paying attention. We're seeing a little bit of movement up uh, in some swing states. It's now around 50 percent that want him both impeached and removed. But I agree with Paul. I want hearings as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. I know it's not 1974, and I was riveted in 1973 and 74 by Watergate, but I think people will – Pay attention. We do have social media where people can watch this stuff, and this testimony is going to be really significant and really uh, grab people, I think. And when they get to the point to where they find out or just internalize what Vindeman is saying, that what Donald Trump did is endanger our security, your security, it hits home a little more for people. Carl, there's a very good reason why they're having closed-door hearings at the – which is – First of all, they're 
maybe some national security issues. And secondly, you don't want the witnesses to to speak in open testimony at the beginning because you want to make sure that they are telling their own story and they're not picking up on somebody else's story. So you need to that independent corroboration. I do think on timing that we will get to the open hearings. And I, I agree with you all that that's a very important part of the story. And the whole reason why Congress wanted Mueller to testify is because it's far more persuasive to see a, a clip on TV than it is to read. Nobody's and these people are unimpeachable. Document. I mean, they may try to claim they're double agents or un-American and all, but when you see the people that should be lionized, who are both career military and career civil servants who are above reproach, say that Trump did something bad for the country, it, I think it just damages him irreparably, and we need to see it, and we need to see it somewhat soon. I know they have a, a schedule and a process, and I know Republicans, all they have are these stunts about the process. In fact, today I heard that they were badgering Vindman to try to get him to name the whistleblower. <laughs> yeah. And as Chairman Schiff put an end to it because all they're doing is trying to wreck the process. Uh, that may have some uh, effect with with Trumpers. This thing is uh, that this thing is just out to get Trump. But the bottom line is Trump has already confessed to this right. himself. Republicans have no recourse. You know, I, I don't practice federal criminal law, but that's got to be a crime, right? I mean, revealing the name of a whistleblower is a crime. They are statutorily protected. So to sit there and advocate that somebody break the law. I, I, don't, I don't know what, you, what, that, what that would be, but that can't they be They didn't okay. specifically use those words. We, we, we want to make a point here that um, the reason Nancy Pelosi did what she did today uh, or yesterday, saying that she's going to have a vote on how the impeachment process will unfold, is because this has been the Republicans' argument, that this thing is uh, unconstitutional, that the process is unfair. That has no merit, because let's repeat again, the Constitution says the House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment. It doesn't say anything about how it's to be conducted. Mm-hmm. So their claim that this is somehow uh, unconstitutional is meritless. But it does what Nancy Pelosi did by doing this is taking away an argument of the Republicans. Now, here, we'll give you your damn process. This is the process. And it'd be interesting to see if Trump goes after this man who, uh, you know, didn't say I had bone spurs, but went to Iraq, uh, was wounded and got the Purple Heart. He's already gone after him. Has he? Yeah. He, uh, he uh, Two tweets. I don't know who this guy is. I, he, I don't know who he is. Why? Yeah. Would, I, well, how can he say things that he heard me saying? Like- and, and then the second tweet, he didn't know who he was, but the second tweet said, "Well, he's a never Trumper." Uh, uh, and I, I want to just one thing. Uh, 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 one of the late reports I saw today, and I don't know if it's true or not. It, I think it is though. Is that Devin Nunes' assistant has been? Uh, leaking the name of the whistleblower mm-hmm. to uh, Republicans. These guys are rats. Lock them up. Yeah. Lock them yeah. up. Um, I'm sorry. I, I, what I, my one critique of Democrats in this process, especially Adam Schiff and the Democratic leadership, is they need to do a lot better job of explaining this process and defending these base allegations that Republicans are putting out there, such as Republicans aren't allowed in the process. Well, 
there are Republicans on three separate committees who are in this room. In fact, uh, that parade of Republicans that invaded that skiff, a quarter of them had the right to be there anyways. But they, 13, left, right. they left the room in order to join the group to attack the room. Um, when they say things like, these things shouldn't be done in secret, remind them that Benghazi had what? Ten dozen confidential secret meetings, and that there's really good reasons. Well, even Trey Gowdy admitted last week that the Democrats were 100 percent right. correct to have these meetings in secret because that's what they did on. But, but I have been asked. Well, and the reason is because uh, this is an indictment process, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a trial. The right. Senate, Grand jury. right? Well, exactly. it, right, it should be in private, but my concern is I'm hearing from multiple Democrats who are saying to me, gosh, I just don't understand why Democrats care, are doing this in private. Shouldn't they open this up? And right. it's like, I mean, Adam Schiff and company should make sure everyone American understands well, what Kim just said in 10 no, seconds, which right. is that you got to protect national security and you don't want witnesses to coordinate stories. That's it. That's a I, really good I reason. I agree with your critique, but the more, the quicker we get to open hearings, Agreed. The, the absolute better. I believe that Paul is absolutely right, whether, whether it's three TV stations or four that we had in the 60s or 70s or whether that's the internet now, people are drawn into drama and they need to see it clearly. And I'm also very pleased that, as I understand the plan, when they do have open hearings, that they're going to have counsel question these witnesses like Sam Dash did during the Watergate committee, mm-hmm. not you know five minutes for each member on the panel, that they will have actual legal experts. Thank God. Yes, getting right into a, a, a storyline and uh, that people can follow. So that's good. I want to make one quick thing mentioned about Kevin McCarthy, the the minority (laughs) leader in the House. When Nancy Pelosi first – Sharpest knife in the drawer. Yeah. Well, when Nancy Pelosi – I'm going to mean to say this, and I never get a chance to talk on the podcast, so (laughs) – But when when Nancy Pelosi originally um, made the solemn announcement that the the House would begin the impeachment process – Kevin McCarthy came out and he said – this is what he said. He said, Speaker Pelosi is trying to overturn the results of the election. Well, someone should tell McCarthy that you know, there's been an election since the 2016 election. It was the 2018 election <laughs> where Democrats took 41 seats in the House. Maybe he is trying to overturn the 2018 election because elections have consequences. Democrats are in charge and they're not going to stand – anymore for this crime wave coming out of the Oval Office. They are in charge of who does impeachment, who doesn't do impeachment, and how they do it. That's the results of the election. And and following up on Dylan said, I was watching a, a Republican congressman on television from Nevada today. His name is Yoho or Yolo or something like that. And the the uh, uh, interviewer said to him, and now he was one of the guys who's allowed, the guys who was allowed, Republicans who were allowed to be in the hearings. She said, how many Hearings have you gone to? He said, none. I don't want to go. It's all a big show. So he's show. a committee member. Right? Yeah, they're not required member. to go. Yeah, and, and she said, well, how do, do you read the transcripts? And he said, I read, the, I read the summary of one. Look, there's no doubt in my mind that the House will impeach this president. Um, what, what is important, though, is can we get all Democrats and independents in the Senate and to be honest about it, Doug Jones in Alabama, he's got a tough race. He may not vote to convict. So we have to get him and we have to get 20 Republicans to get to 67. And it is only doable if public opinion rises to the point – 
where they understand that if they stick with this guy, they're not only going to lose the White House, but they're going to lose the Senate. That's why public opinion is extremely important. They read all these polls. They're making those calculations now. If they feel that they that somehow they can win with him or hold the Senate, I know what they're going to do. The Republicans are going to say, well, you know, this wasn't really good. Um, he shouldn't have done it, but it's not worthy of conviction and we hope he'll straighten up and that's what they're going to say but if they really hear from their constituents both with phone calls emails marches uh, public displays and polls that show they're going to be in trouble they may ditch him i say if, if doug jones is possibly a deciding vote i think we'll see a profile in courage i think he'll throw away his seat to vote guilty. Wait, if there's and 20 he, Republicans to give him cover, I think we can count right, on Doug Jones. Right, and you've true. got senators with tough races like Joni Ernst and Susan Collins and Murkowski and Romney. Those are that's a combination of people who are either up for re-election that are going to be feeling some pressure or people that don't have any allegiance to Donald Trump. Well, and that's a really important point is that this comes at a really precarious time for Republican Senate candidates because they have an impossible choice to make, which is that they can vote – uh, with their party and piss off moderates and Democrats, which they're going to need in some of these states, or they can vote for impeachment and piss off the Republicans. But the problem with that, though, is that most of these states, the filing deadline hasn't passed. If they vote against Trump, they're guaranteeing themselves a viable primary opponent. You know, Kim, coming off what you said and Dylan responded to, you know, Lindsey Graham is proposing the Senate resolution, which condemns the whole impeachment process in the That's House. That's on hold now. That yeah, yeah. And the reason is – um, well, the reason before she announced that there would be a vote in the House on the process, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney, three Republicans, came out against it. Hmm. Okay? They said, you know, they all had their various reasons, and Lisa Murkowski was like, you know, we don't get into the rules of, of the House, and they don't get into our rules. But that just shows you right there, especially with uh, moderates and people like Susan Collins, that they're shying away from this extreme, you know, this whole thing is nonsense, because they're going to be they're going to be given evidence when there's a trial in the Senate, and they have to stand up and look at that evidence as United States senators, and their vote will be recorded for all time. And 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 uh, uh, Lisa Murkowski and uh, Mitt Romney have no fear of being primaried or beaten. They 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 they'd win by a landslide as independents as she did and as right. Mitt Romney would. She she didn't even get the Republican nomination no. a few years ago and ran she as was an independent in Alaska and won. So a you know writing, a write in yeah. campaign and amazing. to spell a name and there, like that. There's not even any paper in Alaska, <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There's they no papers to, up there. Did they have to spell her name right for yeah. it to be counted? Yes, it does. <laughs> oh yeah. my God. I just want to be in Lindsey Graham's office when three Republicans came out against his proposal. He must have had the vapors. <laughs> And right gone down on that fading uh, couch right away. A, a related subject, since we're talking about impeachment and Trump going away or staying or coming or doing whatever he does. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, stop laughing. It wasn't meant that way. Do you think? I didn't even you take it that way. That, no, that, that the uh, Al Baghdadi strike and capture will significantly boost Trump's approval rating across America. Who wants to go with this one? Mm -hmm. um, again, approvals baked in the cake, maybe a point or two. Um, I don't think even if opinions weren't baked in the cake, I don't think it's going to have much impact for a couple of reasons. First is this isn't Osama bin Laden. Um, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi is not a household name. I'm pretty sure I just butchered that myself, and oh, I follow, and I follow, good, I follow this stuff pretty closely. Um, 
Plus, I can bet you can't spell it. <laughs> I'm not taking that bet. Plus, Trump's prior rhetoric is kind of stepping on his current rhetoric, which is that for the past several weeks, he's been saying pulling out of Syria was just fine because ISIS is gone. And now we just killed the leader of ISIS. Well, who cares if we killed a leader that has no organization uh, behind back, him? Go back to, to March. He said we just took over 1% of the territory uh, controlled by ISIS in Syria. He said ISIS was 100% defeated <laughs> in March. And yeah. two weeks before that, Mike Pence says, quote, literally within hours or days, the ISIS caliphate will be no more. Mm-hmm. Pence that said in February. So if it was gone, if it was, uh, it was, it was de- defeated, why is it a big deal that, that he got Baghdadi? I mean, he but did not. Right. But – to answer this question, um, oh, Dylan, I'm, I'm, let, go ahead and finish. I'm sorry. I don't well, want to. I was just going to say that to the extent that he this was a positive for Trump, again, he ruined his own message by how he delivered it, this 50-minute babbling tirade. I want to, if we can, break down some of the stuff that he spewed out there, which is going to be showing up in terrorist recruitment videos for the next 50 okay, years. Okay, how does a dog die? <laughs> by strapping a vest of explosives <laughs> and chasing it down a tunnel. I'm very upset that they doxed the dog. The dog's name is Cone. Aww. And Trump declassified the picture and the name of the dog so that he could I tweet demand about secret it. hearings. Well, I, 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 I'm not sure if you were finished before. No, I, I'm going. Go ahead. Uh, um, we got al-Baghdadi uh, not because of Trump, but despite Trump. Trump did everything he could to hurt our ability to get al-Baghdadi. He, he dumped our troops out of Syria. He abandoned our allies who had all the knowledge of the area and the people and the soldiers. And he continually defiles our intelligence Absolutely. agencies, mm-hmm. which these three are troops on the ground. Delta Force, I love them, by the way. No one can tell me anything different. They're the ones that deserve the credit. Yeah. yeah. That our was his troops first on the mistake. ground uh, are, are Kurds. Friends yeah, on the ground and our, intelligence. and our intelligence. All three things that he shits on. Basically, that's absolutely right, Paul. That's absolutely right. Um, Dylan, I want to hear your, your list and then I'm going to give oh, my uh, on all of it. He says he's been obsessed with al-Baghdadi since he's taken office. Yes. I have never heard him say this name no. ever before. <laughs> Neither have I. Um, I think he said he wanted a Trump Tower in al-Baghdadi. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, he said that Baghdadi's body was mutilated, quote, not much left of his body, and that uh, we were able to recover substantial pieces of his body. And then he died like a dog. He died like a coward. I mean, I don't know if most Americans know this, but in the, in most Middle Eastern cultures, dogs are considered very dirty, vile creatures. You, they don't take them on as pets. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're rodents to them. And so to, to compare – uh, Arabs to dogs and this type of language is so unpresidential and it's just it's inflammatory to the Middle East and you compare it I mean there have been some videos online today of mashing up Obama's response to killing bin Laden in his nine minute speech to Trump's 50 minute speech and it's just sobering to see what a president's supposed to act like compared to to Trump. Um, he compared the killing of uh, Baghdadi to Osama bin Laden, saying that Baghdadi is probably a bigger deal, whatever. <laughs> he lied about writing a book in 2000 that warned America that Osama bin Laden was the true threat and that we had to pay special close attention to this imminent threat, even though his book said nothing he hasn't like read that. read a book. 
Right. And then he said that ISIS comprises the second best internet users on the planet, second only to himself as the best internet user. <laughs> I mean, like, what is this man talking about? 25th Amendment. Well, what is he talking about? Uh, uh, just to go aside for a second, his press secretary said that John Kelly was fired because he couldn't deal with the most incredible genius president <laughs> of all time. Right. Look, uh, the original question is, will help him? I think it will help him uh, a little bit. Um, people, people who love Trump, and I'll go even beyond people who love Trump. Americans love a lot of Americans love that we took out an ISIS leader, uh, and and Trump's tweeting. We also got a successor. He's dead. D e a d. There are a lot of people who like that. Uh, a lot of people who like military dogs. Um, and remember, in 2012, one of the most successful slogans for Obama's reelection was General Motors is alive and Osama bin Laden is dead. Now, I don't think it's going to move the needle enough. But what the, Dylan said earlier is true. Most people probably have decided whether they're going to vote for Trump in 2020 or the Democratic nominee. OK, mm-hmm. so we're after a s- increasingly small percentage of the pie and you You'd limit that down then to six or seven swing states and even smaller um, pieces of the pie that people aren't going to vote on. My big concern here is that in Florida and Pennsylvania and Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, and maybe in Arizona, swing states, there are a lot of people who are going to – who haven't decided yet who are going to come down on, you know – Trump's an idiot. He's a moron. He's horrible. He's a despicable person. But, you know, the economy's good for me and he's keeping us safe. Those are the people I worry about because the Democrats have got to have a message in those seven states that says you're going to be better off with us. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that this could have uh, be a deciding factor in Trump's favor, I think it could for some people. But we have another year. And, then, mm-hmm. and the point you made, Paul, is a worthy one. And you too, Dylan, that, that this is going to inflame terrorism. Don't forget the, the hundreds of ISIS prisoners who are now out there because of his stupid decision. And remember, ally, our, not just our allies, but people around the world, when he says, I'm going to send the troops back in to protect the oil, that's where he sent the troops back in. This reinforces, not only in the Arab world, but most of the third world, that the United States simply wants to extract resources from other countries. We are much better country when we do the Marshall Plan to rebuild Western Europe after right. World War II under, under Truman or under Kennedy when we have the Alliance for Progress with South America. That not only makes us a more moral country, it makes us a safer country. Nothing that Trump has done seems to make us a safer country. He's denigrating our alliances. He is playing this risk game with great impulse. I don't think he does make us safer. So if people can connect the dots that we're not safer, that this man has committed impeachable offenses, and because of it we're less safe, it could move public opinion in our direction. It remains to be seen. We have another year before the election, what he's going to do next. The economy is not that stable. The economy is showing signs of an upcoming recession. Uh, there are some real specific signs that say oh, the economy is not going to last. I'm not saying the economy is good, uh, but unemployment is a 50-year low. And people, you know, I keep saying the things he's done, this $2.2 trillion debt, um, uh, dollars in debt that he's added, makes – 
it, it clear that he's putting this economy on the credit card. He is not making things better for the middle class because his tax cuts for the wealthy have just widened the gap of income and wealth inequality in this country. But see what I just said there? It takes a lot to assess yeah. this. For the people who follow Trump, it's like, oh, you know, black unemployment's down. Look what he's done for the black people. It's yeah. always simpler for the for the Republicans to put out a message, oh, the economy is doing well. And I understand it's not doing well for farmers. It's not doing well for the same people who cannot afford health insurance. Many of Right, and manufacturing, which I just said. The, my only point is he's going to run on peace and prosperity. The Democrats better have a response that hits in these six or seven key states to tell people, if you're undecided, we're better for you, not him. That's all I'm saying. Well, if they need to know what to say, they should call me. But in the meantime, <laughs> we have one more. You should put an ad on Facebook because we're going to talk about Facebook. It doesn't have to be true. <laughs> That's right. In the meantime, just to, to, to uh, go aside to a different subject for uh, uh, the rest of the show, part of the rest of the show, uh, Facebook. Facebook says that they will not fact check political ads. Is that right? Wrong? Is it a mistake? Will it hurt them? It's absolutely wrong for them not to take a proactive approach. Right. They, uh, Mark Zuckerberg came to Congress to talk about his cryptocurrency, which nobody wanted to talk about. Libra. They wanted to talk about uh, his lack of integrity when it comes to interference in our election in 2016 by Russians and those who were manipulating social media. And why we need to make that a priority to not let that happen again. And he's sidestepping the question by saying, well, we think it's the best approach is for people to see what their politicians are saying. So he's taking zero responsibility for that. You know, I think it's it's wrong for him to do. I think the policy is wrong. And I think it's unwise for him to come to Congress and say what, what mm-hmm. he just said. Because remember, Facebook is under great pressure. And I want to mention that there are at least eight states, attorneys general, who are um, supporting antitrust investigations. As they should. Mm-hmm. And the FTC. And FTC, good luck with what they're going to say about Facebook and antitrust. But he's under a lot of pressure, as is Facebook, because of what happened in the 2016 election. And I, I you know, and they're, they're saying he's going to tighten things up. Well, his and, argument is that we're pipes, we're not content, I, right? I understand that. But we don't need to be held to the same standards. The content is subject to fact-checking on Facebook. The best thing I saw on this comes on Monday, this Monday, when the New York Times got a hold of an internal letter that was signed by 250 employees of Facebook. And I'll read you one, That's one great, paragraph. Great letter. Yes, it is. Quote, free speech and paid speech are not the same thing. Misinformation affects us all. We strongly object to the current policy. It doesn't protect voices, but instead allows politicians to weaponize our platform by targeting people who believe that content posted by political figures is trustworthy. Now, the backdrop to this is Trump is dropping millions of dollars on Facebook. He's buying ads about lying about Hunter Biden and the Bidens. He's lying about the impeachment process. About the Second and, Amendment. And, and, right. And so, you know, he's spending millions of dollars to do this. This letter also had great bullet points. The, the employees that signed this said that Facebook should ban false political ads like it does other non-political ads. Political ads should be more clearly distinguished in their news feed. Facebook should observe, quote, election silence periods, which I really like. And politicians should have spending caps on the amount of political ads they can run. Facebook can do that because they're a private company. I think it's great that the employees said to, to Mark Zuckerberg, look, this is hurting us 
as a brand, especially in the light of what happened in 2016. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a $40 billion a year company, and 90% of that comes from advertising. But they don't need to take political advertisements whatsoever. And I think one of the things that's most troubling is in 2016, they had staff that were embedded with the campaigns, working with Cambridge Analytica and other companies like that. Right. And they're giving their uh, advice from their staff members to the campaigns. I think that's deeply problematic. Well, I know why Zuckerberg's doing this, because he doesn't want to lose the revenue. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's the case, though, because I think get like 4% of their ad revenue is from political ads. So it's not a huge income. I mean, it is huge, but compared to what they normally do for everything else, it's not huge. Um, and so I'm really concerned with what's driving him here because I'm sure we're going to get to it. AOC's questioning of him in the congressional hearing is she asked him, well, you are going to do some policing, right? So, he, like, so for example, he said that if somebody targets African-American communities with the wrong election day, he wouldn't allow that. Or misinformation about the census. So he, why does he, he allow Trump right, so, to do it? So where where is Zuckerberg and his team drawing these dis- dis- distinctions and why? And what AOC, the point she made, which is very powerful, is that, look, we're not telling you to police spin. People can spin however they want to. That's too complicated. But this when is- somebody provides a factual misstatement that you can just prove is, is not factual, you got to step in and stop that. And he played dumb and wouldn't I, do anything. I think if Trump has told how many th- 13,000 lies yeah. that his face should meal out on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, what? Uh, picking up what you guys just said, what Mark Zuckerberg is saying is counterintuitive. I mean, he just last week announced what they were going to do to be proactive on election interference, right? They're going to use the better tools to stop the hacking. They're going to identify and take down foreign influence campaigns. They're going to label, I love this, they're going to label state-owned or controlled media organizations like, and they mentioned, Russia Today. I mentioned that last week. (laughs) Russia Today. So if they're doing that, why aren't they fact-checking lies in political ads. It doesn't make sense to me. Just, there has to be a reason. I think Jack. he's afraid of the slippery slope. He's saying, hey, if there's any regulation, it's opening the door to regulation. And I think he doesn't want that. He's saying we're pipes, we're not content. And yet by doing this, he's inviting regulation. He is, absolutely. They have to police themselves. They have to fix the problem. He's not recognizing the problem. He's not agreeing to fix the problem. He's just flat out saying no problem exists. Well, they, they, have, they have fact checkers for some things, like census apparently is fact checking. And one of their fact checkers is the Daily Caller. That's right. Um, which AOC right, asked him about that and said, how on earth could you That's have... Tucker Carlson's outfit. Yeah, it's, it's a with close ties to white supremacy organizations. She asked him, how can you have an organization like Daily Caller as one of your trusted fact checkers? And he, he again, farmed out any responsibility saying, oh, we don't make that decision. All of our fact checkers are approved by the, what, international fact checking organization? I mean, it's like, <laughs> is, that, is that Putin, you know, or some fat guy in his bed in his bedroom? I mean, I, who is this? I mean, and so I just... He's, he's dismissing all any responsibility for this. And I think Carl's right. I think that there is something else going on here. I, I mean, he strikes me as someone who's pretty apolitical, but it would not surprise me if he has some very important conservatives who are bending his ear on this. Because I'd like they to want, see, they know the disinformation campaigns favors conservatives. I'd like to see them broken up, like Ma Bell was broken up, like uh, like all monopolies get broken up. Mm-hmm. Ma Bell was a, a, a pipe. You, you made the phone calls. They didn't tell you what to say. Um, I think that there's no re- – it's such a utility that's important to so many Americans in everybody's daily life and the way our government runs that we got to control that thing. Mm-hmm. It's just not right. Uh, um, and the, the other thing I'd like to see to get started is I'd like to see the same way they deal with it on television. All political advertisements should say who paid for it, 
and who agrees with it the same way they do on television. Well, let's make a point that broadcasters, even though they're regulated by the FCC, do not have to fact check ads. In fact, the 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 Biden ad that the anti Biden ad that was false that Trump was running, Fox ran it, uh, MSNBC ran it, CNN was the only one that CNN did not refused. run it. Now, but it said who paid for it. Yes, but to your point, Dylan, it may only be four percent of Facebook's revenue. But political ads are huge pots mm-hmm. for radio and TV stations. And it probably is one of the biggest reasons we're never going to have public financing of campaigns. Now, I was on KPOJ, which was uh, you know on Clear Channel, a Clear Channel station, for six years. They made a ton of money on political ads, mm-hmm. both on the left and the right. So it's a pot. It's just like, can you reform the, the caucus and primary system? Well, I was not going to give up all the money that comes in. Neither is New Hampshire. They're not going to do it. But, uh, you know, I just don't understand for him to say, well, you know, even the broadcast companies that are regulated by the FCC, they don't, why is he even talking about a regulation? Because that's going to invite regulation, not mm-hmm. only of him, but of broadcasters. If we had an FCC, that had three majority, a majority of three who felt the way we do, but we don't right now. <laughs> I agree. Elizabeth Warren, by the way, took an ad on Facebook that that said, uh, "This Elizabeth Warren, I want to say that Jeff Zuckerberg has announced Mark. he's Mark Zuckerberg has announced he's supporting Donald Trump." She did that on purpose. I know they did it on purpose. She did it on purpose to show how stupid it is. Uh, and I, I'll I'll do her one better. This was one of my favorite news stories of the week on Monday yesterday. Guy named Adriel Hampton. He's a political activist, a progressive in San Francisco. I think he owns his own marketing firm. He filed to run as governor of California on Monday. So he's an official candidate. He paid mm-hmm. the fee just so he could run fa- false ads on Facebook about Trump and Zuckerberg. Nice. So he's Wait, that. That doesn't make very much sense, though, right? Because you can still run, I can run false ads on Facebook, right, without being a candidate. Yeah, but he's a political candidate running for governor, and he's making the point that they're not going to fact-check his political ads. They do fact-check uh, content that's not in a political advertisement. That's what's so ridiculous about this. And I believe it's the conservatives, the right wing that really has a hold of Mark Zuckerberg. They really do. They've got him running scared. If Back I w- to the time when they had that – they alleged that the algorithm – Cut down on right. on conservative news. Right. He's been running scared ever since then. Right. And I agree. I think they're awfully big right now. And if if some kind of regulation or antitrust um, doesn't come, uh, we're going to be in worse trouble because, you know, we're in a time now where objective truth is increasingly a rare commodity. And that's not good for a democracy, not good for any um, any uh, society that that wants to get to the bottom of any any scandal or any uh, effort to do better. If I was a, a, a candidate that was sort of losing, uh, I would go off the deep end, and my campaign would be every day. I would tell another huge lie about what that's I'm already been do. done. It's called Trump, <laughs> and, 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 and I would get famous for doing that. Right. Uh, you know, every, every, every uh, once I'm elected, everyone in the United States will own a Mercedes Benz. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, like anything else, the Internet is, you know, can be used for great purposes, but it can also be used for nefarious purposes. And it has been. And I, I just go back to what you said, Kim. Uh, you, you know, let me take it's better for Zuckerberg. It's better for his company 
to have more trust. This goes back to the days of the populist movement uh, when they exposed in, in slaughterhouses all the conditions. You know, it turned out to be better for those companies that they had federal regulation because then people who bought from them could be uh, sure that what they were, the meat they were getting was safe. Trump's it ended up helping those too. companies, right? Trump has rescinded that now, too. They're going to let meat packing companies police themselves. <laughs> really? I think he's going to let that dog go in <laughs> from Syria and take all the meat he wants. Yeah. And, you know. Upton Sinclair. About yeah, Upton new, Sinclair. New I mean, but th- there has been a great deal written on the, the, the progressive area and before that the populist area that this regulation actually helped those businesses. They fought it tooth and nail, but came to understand that in the long run, it was better for them, better for consumers, and better for the country. Are we at a point where we're going to do something about uh, Trump? No, do something about things you may not know. Do we have time to do that, Patrick? Uh, I have a factoid, things you? you may not know. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I, I just want to say one thing, and I, I hope I'm not uh, 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 stoking rumors and falsely accusing uh, Mr. Trump of anything I wrong. I think that's why people listen to our podcast. Uh, Go ahead. But, but uh, today it was announced, okay, that, that Amazon was really close to getting the, uh, the uh, $10 billion contract to put up the United States government cloud. Uh, and today it was announced that that was going to be given to Microsoft instead. And uh, uh, I don't, I haven't found all of the details yet, except I do know that Donald Trump hates Jeff Bezos and hates that the Washington Post is telling the truth and reporting on the crap that he does. And He's jealous that Bezos is richer than he is. But Bezos' wife, his wife is richer <laughs> That's than really, Trump really pissing right him. now. Uh, and so I, I just wanted to... You know, it would be a powerful symbol if we, you know, and I revere the flag. But if someone redid the American flag, the, the stripes could stay. But instead of the 50 stars, put a big banana in there. Mm-hmm. Because we are, in many ways with Trump, a banana republic. I mean, talking about Bill Barr, the stooges he has in there. That's your he really, t-shirt, he man. Ha- you he really has no need for um, for the independent court system, the media, anything uh, in many ways, we're like – are you talking about these Republicans storming the skiff? I mean this is what happens in a banana republic right. where he says Hillary's going to go to jail. This is banana republic. They've got nothing left but mob rule. Yeah. Right. I like well, to call it Matt Gates stormtroopers. Every time David Brooks says the system is holding, I want to pull my hair out because Trump is weeding these people out. We're having fewer and fewer of these brave people inside. Pretty soon, I mean, the system being is being held together now with uh, rubber bands and duct tape and bubble gum. I mean. We need to protect our system and reinforce it. We can't sit by blindly, as David Brooks would, and say, it's holding, we're doing fine. We're not doing fine. That is one of the powerful arguments we've got to put forth between now and Election Day and see if people who do fly the American flag really love their country because their country is at risk. Democracy is fragile, and it's a lot more fragile than lies. We think that we can abuse it, and it'll still be there. And um, these institutions and these norms... That's that's to me that's the key issue uh, right now for this country, and we have to rid ourselves of Trumpism. Uh, absolutely right. All right, uh, all right. You got a factoid. I got a factoid. I got a thing. Thing Conan that people may not know. The dog. Conan the dog. You know who he is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's the uh, dog. Conan the dog that's u- that was used in the raid that killed Al Baghdadi was a Belgian Malinois. 
And it was also used in hunting and capturing bin Laden. Same dog. I don't know if it was Conan, but it was... I'd let him loose in the White House. Find <laughs> <some tricks. laughs> you guys are always talking about how Trump has no dog. It would, right. it would bite him and right that's in the why. ass. I want to say, actually, on the that's podcast where I wasn't here uh-huh. and you guys were talking about Trump and dogs, somebody actually had given a dog to Barron as a gift and Trump got rid of it. Jeez. Oh, I think he got rid of Barron, too. <laughs> we haven't seen him lately. The dogs were named for a Belgian city of Malin. They served... As far back as World War I, they work almost exclusively with the Navy SEALs. They skydive. They skydive either being held by their their trainer or by themselves. Really? Yeah. They dump them on an airplane, and they know so they have a tendency to herd each other. So they, they gather up with each other. I have a critical they... question. Has a dog ever gotten bone spurs? <laughs> well, that would be Trump's know. dog. I do not know. I think that Kim would be better That's able unbelievable. to answer that with That's than me. That's great. I didn't know that. And uh, actress Eva Mendez. Eva Mendez has a Malinois. She got it for protection when she was being stalked. Mal- How do you say that? Mal- Malin- Malinois. Is that like a Pinot? Yeah. <laughs> Malinois. It's funny anyway. that you picked that, Paul, and I loved what you just shared with us because I also had a Dogs in War. Nice. <laughs> I love it. Wow. What was the first dog that achieved a rank given to him by the U.S. military, U.S. Army? Well, I, Is that a quiz? No idea. Air Bud. Rin Tin Tin. And what era would have been? What what war period would have been? Uh, World War One. Yes, yeah, it was World in World War One. Sergeant Stubby was the first dog in war. Okay, time for a pee joke. <laughs> Sergeant Stubby. That should, be, that should be Trump's name from now on. I love it. It was the first dog in war that the U.S. Army in 1926, at the time of his death, granted a military rank. And he was involved in four major offenses. His first combat injury was from gas exposure. Oh. And they tend to use Labrador retrievers, Belgian Malinois, as you said, and the German Shepherds. It costs about $50,000 to train a dog to uh, serve in combat. And there were approximately there were approximately 600 dogs serving in nice. Afghanistan and Iraq. So I have a question. Did the privates have to salute Sergeant Stubby? <laughs> well, they actually, yeah. They have a higher rank typically than their handlers. The sergeants are non-commissioned officers and don't get saluted. That's one thing I learned from my time in the Air Force. Probably the only thing I learned. After they're retired, you see a headline that says, Vet Goes to Vets. <laughs> I like it. They also have a company in Canada that makes body armor for them. And I learned that their teeth are so strong that they can uh, chew through body armor as well. But sometimes they ha- damage their teeth, and in order to re- rehabilitate the dog, they replace it with titanium teeth. Oh, wow. Is that the Malinois or just all of them? All of them. That's really amazing. Mm. My goodness, that's great for a, a, a Marvel comic villain. Yeah, <laughs> we're giving out great ideas. The we have a Republic flag. Marvel's got an idea for the show. That's great. I'm, I'm going to go back to humans here for my little thing about Daniel Webster. Not Noah Webster. He was the dictionary guy. From New Hampshire. Noah Noah Webster uh, published his first dictionary in 1806, and the two were not related. So we're going to talk about Daniel Webster, who was from New Hampshire and later was a congressman and senator from Massachusetts in the early to mid-1800s. He was a constitutional lawyer, one of the great minds of his day, one of the great orators of his day. Daniel Webster always wanted to be president. It was his dream. 
Uh, he ran three times for the – he was a Whig for the, the Whig Party's nomination and lost all three times that he was going for the nomination, 1836, 1848, and 1852. This is the funny thing. In 1840, he was offered the vice presidential slot on the ticket with William Henry Harrison, and he declined. Harrison won and died 31 <laughs> days into office. I'm laughing Webster president. would have become president. In 1848, he was offered the vice presidential slot on the ticket with Zachary Taylor, but he refused again. Taylor won, but died 16 months into his term. <laughs> Webster would have become president a second time. Three oh, times he didn't get it. the nomination. Twice it. he could have been president if he had only said yes. There you go. Mm. So... There's a little All history right. lesson Well, for you. we're sort of coming to an end. I want to take these last couple of minutes to thank Brian Sussman for writing our theme music. I want to thank Lane Gallery and Steel Door Gallery for giving us the back room as our recording studio. I want to thank uh, uh, Kevin Kelton uh, as being an inspiration. And Kevin's I want to th- great. He is great. And I want, to, I want to plug his More Perfect Union podcast. And I want to say that if you want to follow up with more of this... Go to the uh, uh, Facebook page that Kevin and I administer uh, called Open Fire. Or They're our sister broadcast. Sort of. I've been wanting to call us uh, the sisters, but I didn't quite get there. Okay. No. By the way, Webster is English in origin, and it means female weaver. Okay. So just so you know. Oh, wow. And I want to remind, I our no listeners, remind our listeners to, wherever they get their podcasts, make sure you like and subscribe and tell your friends about us, get the word out. Rate um, and review us and share the information with a friend, please. Spotify, Absolutely. Google Play, and iTunes. Uh, just search Wolfpack plus Smart Politics or go to wolfpackpdx.com. Uh, by the way, just for the record, and this is no bullshit, our numbers are surging. We're, we're going up higher and higher each week, and I find it exciting and ingratiating. Yeah, and uh, uh, what would you say, Patrick? About seventy or eighty percent of our our uh, tune-ins come from Apple. That's about right. From Apple, yeah. So and I go think there. we've increased our canine listenership tonight as well. Absolutely. Kim Upham, thank you. Dylan Hides, thank you. Paul Block, thank you. Carl Wilson, great. thank you. Well, of course, thank you. I I actually finally got to say something on the <laughs> episode. Thank you, Patrick Zahn. I'll talk to you guys next week. And thank you, Sally Kuhn, for that beautiful note that you thank put you, on Sally. Facebook. 